Hello everyone and welcome to the Encrypted Podcast. Encrypted is the Middle East's first and largest podcast dedicated to blockchain and crypto assets. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Balaghi, and in today's episode, we have Hubertus Stonheiser, who's a founding partner of Enabling Future and a board member of the Tezos Foundation. Hubertus takes us through the trials and tribulations of the Tezos Foundation, the renewed focus on blockchain implementation use cases, and the hot sectors they are pursuing with their technology. And Hubertus being an investor himself at Enabling Future, he shares his investment experience in both the startup sphere and blockchain crypto sphere and what he typically looks out for in projects. But before we jump in, I really would like to thank those who have been supporting the show. And remember, you could support us in any way possible. You could subscribe, rate and review the show, sharing the podcast on your social media and any other way you feel like supporting. Thank you and enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of Encrypted. My name is Ahmed Al-Balaghi, and as ever, I'm recording from Aero 2071 here in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Nick is giving me a weird look. I don't know why. Say hello. We're not coming live? No, we're not coming live anymore. (laughs) And today's special guest is Hubertus Tonheiser. Did I butcher your name? Yeah, it's not bad, actually, for the first try. It's Hubertus Tonhauser. It's an Austrian uh, dialect, but it's okay, Ahmed. <laughs> okay, I, I think I got a bit of it. So, Hubertus, he is the founding partner of Enabling Future and also a board member at Tezos Foundation. So, could you quickly give a, a background about yourself as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, thanks for being here, Ahmed. Really uh, great to be here with you guys. I'm, uh, I was born in Austria, grew up uh, mainly in Switzerland, and I'm, I've been living in the UAE since five years in Dubai. My background is actually I'm an MBA in finance background. On the professional side, I was actually involved in, in startups uh, ever since, right? So I built companies, tried to grow them, sold one, exited two. So that's, that's what, I, what, what drives me and what I was always enthusiastic about, to learn new things, to get involved into new technologies, to test the boundaries. So my first, let's say, uh, founding project was in the year 1999. This was actually uh, in Switzerland. A company in the regulated gaming space, gaming, sports betting, video t- lottery terminals and casinos. So regulated, I have to underpin that one backed by the Austrian lotteries. So I was the founding CEO of this company. I did this for quite some time, for a couple of years. In 2009, I exited that one. And then I looked at, you know, where are the opportunities? And the Middle East came up, obviously, because it's a very interesting market in terms of demographics, uh, very low alternative entertainment offers at that time. So we thought, you know, internet penetration was very high, Facebook activation, mobile activation, very high at that time. So we said, okay, let's uh, try and figure out if we can do a mobile games company here. And um, I pitched, actually, I did a reverse pitch. So I, as an angel investor, came to the region. I looked for co-founders and I found a gentleman who worked for uh, Peak Games, which at that time was one of the largest mobile games companies in the Middle East, based in Istanbul. And we set up a company in Dubai called Babil Games in 2011. And this company, you know, um, probably you've heard about it, they quickly became one of the leading mobile games companies in the Middle East. And in 2016, uh, was acquired by Stillfront, which is uh, the largest European mobile games company listed on the NASDAQ. So they bought us. 
And uh, since then, you know, then I had the, the choice. Either I stay in the region, I try to get involved in the ecosystem, you know, invest maybe in local startups, not only international ones, or I go back to my home country. And I decided to spend more time in the UAE because this was exactly the time when, you know, all these government initiatives started again to, to support technology. And, uh, you know, I ended up here and I invested then, um, you know, a couple of startups. Now with my partner, we have now uh, we have two partners, uh, Sato Marani. We have a venture capital firm called Enabling Future. We invest only our own uh, family money, and for follow investments, uh, we create SPVs. And we have about 20 portfolio companies now. In a couple, most of them in the U.S. and in Europe, but some of them also in the region. Great. So the first time we met was at I think the Tharawat Family Office Forum when. Ethereum was probably still at $900 and we were on a panel together. And I was always wondering how you got into blockchain and, and this space. When, when was your flipping moment? It was actually a coincidence, to be really honest with you. So it was in 2014 when a friend of mine uh, in, in back in Switzerland, he owed me some money, not a lot. And, uh, but, you know, a couple of thousands. So he said, listen, where does, are you okay if I pay you in Bitcoin? So I said, listen, what, what's that? <laughs> So I tried to get myself a little bit more educated and uh, understand what, what this is. Mm -hmm. And then I accepted it. I opened my first Coinbase account. It was obviously not as seamless as today. And yeah. um, that's how I you know, got in touch with crypto in the first place. And then obviously when you are into, into technology investments, you come across, the, you know, you can't get, uh, can't get away with, with not seeing the blockchain technology. I mean, that's, that's pretty obvious. And uh, I looked at a couple of projects then. Uh, one was Rootstock, RSK, very early on. Some, project, uh, some projects in the blockchain space, DLT space, and Tezos, you know, mm -hmm. was one of these, um, you know, companies that happened to be part of my deal flow because they are based in Switzerland. Uh, so the foundation was set up in Switzerland. The founders are a couple from France and the US, Arthur and Kathleen Brightman. And, you know, I was pretty much impressed with their approach because, and I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later on in our conversation, they tried to address some of the flaws that Ethereum and Bitcoin um, had at that time, which was, and we were talking about the year 2016, 17, right? Yeah. So that's what actually What the, a long time ago that was. Yeah. yeah. Crypto eternity. <laughs> I was going to say, no, most of the time, these types of two or three years in the blockchain space, they equivalent to two or three generational cycles of yeah, totally. real old world business cycles of seven years. Yeah. It's just getting crazy now. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's fun to be Super in this dynamic. sector right now. Yeah, yeah. it's very dynamic. Yeah. And I mean, the impressive thing about, about Tezos was really that they tried to solve the problems of forks, of hard forks. Yeah. They tried to solve the problem of hacks. Can you explain what a fork is just for those... <laughs> still don't uh, okay. understand. So, yeah, so a fork is basically when what happens normally in proof-of-work kind of blockchains, that the development communities who back these blockchains, they don't agree on a technological path or a certain technological milestone or revolution. And as there is no on-chain or consensus mechanism, probably there is not even an off-chain one, right? So what normally happens is that, you know, they, they split path. They say, okay, we go this direction, we go the other direction, and then the code, uh, the, the, the blockchain code is being forked, which means that the original blockchain is being split into two uh, parallel ones, if you want, with different features. That's how we ended up with Bitcoin, with Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin Silver, and whatever yeah. is around. I lost, uh, I lost the, uh, the, the track here, Ethereum as well. And, and Tezos, you know, tried to address this issue with an on-chain governance. And I'd probably, let me make one, one static, why is this an issue at all? Because 
you could also argue a fork is a good thing because investors ends up having multiple coins. Normally, he ends up having uh, not one plus one, but one plus one is two, but one plus one is three because the value of the additional coins uh, often is more than the, the initial one. Or well, one plus one could equals one. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> depending on the market evolution, obviously. But there are pros and cons, in the, especially when you look at it from the investment side. But, I mean, from a user perspective, I think what you need at the end of the day, you need a software that is reliable, right? And I think mm. it's kind of predictable. And the approach of Desus is um, it's not, a, it's not a, a D-app technology where you, I mean, you could do it, but the, the prime objective is to create a reliable piece of software for industrial use. Mm. And therefore, it, it has to be predictable for the end user. And on-chain yes. governance is one of the three main key features of Tezos, which means that changes, protocol amendments can be proposed by all the stakeholders of the blockchain. And if a certain quorum is reached, which is 80%, mm. then this, this, this project is being voted. And if there's a qualified majority, then it's ending up on a testnet for a couple of months. And if the testnet run works successfully, it's seamlessly integrated into the mainnet. Right. So you have basically a, a feature, it's the first time in the world this exists. Actually, whilst we speak, the first on-chain governance amendment is happening. Right. So this is currently taking place in this, in this month. And we believe this is a very interesting way of, of not only potentially being the last blockchain, because technically you could integrate any upgrade which yeah. uh, somebody develops and which turns out to be meaningful, you could, you know, if the community accepts it, you could integrate it in Tezos and so mm. the protocol grows, but in a very organized way and mm. without disruption, let's put it that way. So this is one of the main, one of the three key features of Tezos. And before we, we get into the other features, could you explain for like a bit of background about the history of Tezos and sort of the, um, the problems that arose after the fundraiser of, yeah. of the foundation in Switzerland and what happened there? Because a lot has changed since then, likely in a, in, a, in a positive note. But just for a bit of background. Sure. So Tezos has been around as a project since around 2014, right? So Arthur Brightman and Kathleen, his wife, they are the founders. Arthur was a former hedge fund trader uh, or quant. Um, he is a computer scientist for, by, by training. And uh, he developed Tezos, and the uh, Alphanet was around in 2014-15, and in 2017, the project has, uh, uh, you know, during these you know, fundraising times, in, in, especially in Europe, has raised a large ICO. For that purpose, a foundation was created in Switzerland. Initially, the idea was to raise uh, maybe 20, 30 million dollars, which we deemed uh, back then enough for rolling out the protocol. But at the same time, it was an uncapped fundraiser. And it was an uncapped fundraiser not because we wanted to raise uh, an indefinite amount of money, but the idea was to, make, uh, to raise as much as, as, as a large enough community as possible. Right? Mm -hmm. So it was more a community raiser than a fundraiser in the first place. Yes. But then it ended up also to be a very interesting fundraiser because it, was, uh, it ended up with around, I think, depending on the exchange rate you take, 260 million US dollars that were raised uh, in a couple of months during this ICO. Yeah. So it was pretty significant. Until then, it was the largest ICO in history. And, you know, th this was obviously way more than the, 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 the protocol needed in order to, to uh, fulfill its primary mission. And uh, what happened then, and you referred to some issues that happened afterwards, which from today's perspective, they seem ridiculous. Mm -hmm. but back then, it was obviously something to deal with. It was before my time on the board. There were some issues between board members, which, you know, 
triggered some 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 conversations, some bad press, let's put it that way. Yeah. But the good thing here was that the development of the protocol never stopped, right? So the development team that based in Paris, right, uh, that created the protocol, they never stopped to work despite of these issues on the administrative level. And this was very impressive for me as a as a as an, as an VC to see, right, that uh, a team which is so dedicated about a project. Mm. And even though there were some issues uh, with uh, provision of funds and with release of funds and all that, they just continued to work mm. and to execute. And this was, this was actually... Loyalty is very hard to come by now. Ex extreme, <laughs> extreme. And I mean, in, in other cases, if this would happen in a, a normal tech business in Berlin yeah. or everywhere, people would just believe. They would just be poached away the next yeah. clubbing in the evening by the competitor next door and just move, yeah. move sides. So right? was there a, sort of a very like big contrast between the sort of administrative foundation level with the technical or technology team? No, absolutely not. There was no involvement of the technology team in the discussion. Mm. It was purely administrative. Okay. I think uh, the technology, as I've said, this, uh, they continue to deliver. Uh, it was more, an, let's say, a governance management mm. issue than anything else, right? Mm -hmm. Which is good because we could resolve this pretty easily. So yeah. what happened then in, in, in the beginning of 2018, is that a new board stepped in. So we created a new board with uh, some representatives of the industry, also with representatives of Tezos backers, so people who participated in the fundraiser. Uh, one of them was the founder of Polychain Capital, Olaf yeah. Carlson Wee. One of them was Ryan Jasperson uh, from the Tezos Common Foundation at that time, who today is still the president of the Tezos Foundation, and who was you know, one of the leading figures in the turnaround process, and uh, myself. So, you know, I also contributed to the fundraiser back then. And so I obviously, when there was the chance to help and to get this ship running, which had a great potential, then I, I volunteered to, to be part of that. And uh, I knew Arthur and Kathleen from, um, I met them a year, a year before I joined the board actually, and I was impressed by their vision and by their dedication, despite of this adversity during this uh, period I mentioned before. And, uh, you know, when, when we joined in, in, this was actually in February 2018, it was actually, um, there was no Betanet yet launched. There was an Alphanet around. Mm -hmm. There was no mainnet. There was a pile of money, obviously. We, <laughs> in the meantime, the funds have increased uh, to, you know, $700 million, right, because of the Bitcoin increase. Uh, then we traded some. Now the foundation is still very well set financially, so we have a coffer of around 500 to 600 million dollars. So we were one of the best funded DLT projects out there. And in addition, what we try to do then is just to, to you know, treat Tezos as a, as a normal startup company, right? So, I mean, this is what I've done uh, in my previous life. Uh, at the end of the day, it was a very well funded tech startup, right? <laughs> At some point we thought is it a startup is more a hedge fund, but <laughs> I think it's definitely more a tech startup um, and uh, it's all about executing the foundation's mission, which is yeah. to, you know, proliferate the Tezos protocol and uh, mm -hmm. make it happen. I'm interested to understand what, how did you hear about Tezos? So what was the moment you heard about what they're doing? Was it online? Were you meeting someone? You were having coffee and they brought it up? Yeah. So obviously, I spend a lot of my time in Switzerland. So I, am, I have a second residence in Zug, which is today called the Crypto Valley. Yeah. And back then, there was Ethereum was based there. Yeah. A couple of other foundations, Web3 is now there as well. And I know the lawyers very well who set up all these foundations because mm -hmm. they were my lawyers in my previous gaming company. 
And you know, you meet people, you talk about various things, and at some point somebody introduced me Tezos and said, listen, this is a very interesting one because they're addressing some of the pain points uh, of other technologies. And yeah. You might want to have a look at it. And uh, that's what I did. This was actually in late 16, early 17. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. And now since sort of you guys sort of revamped the board, changed things a bit, it's been since what, like a year and a bit now, what has yeah. happened in the course of, of the year and what, what's, going on, what's going on now at Tezos? Yeah. So the, the, the first and most important thing we had to do is obviously to launch the mainnet, right? And first the beta net and then the mainnet. So uh, as I've said before, the, the developers, fortunately, they, they never ceased to work regardless of the situation that happened in fall 2017. So we were, um, we could quickly launch the mainnet in June 2018. Oh, sorry, it was the beta net in, in, in June and the main net in September 2018, right? And this was very important because this was the first time a proof-of-stake uh, protocol launched a mainnet, a functioning mainnet, yeah. with on-chain governance. This has never happened in history before, right? And obviously, in the beginning, there were some, some because of the past and of the bad press that happened, you know, and, and, and people... I didn't have the confidence at the beginning. So it was very clear to us, it's not enough just to launch the mainnet, but we also have to create a company around it, right? So uh, Tezos is a foundation, it's a non-profit foundation in Switzerland, but we quickly uh, started to fund a lot of entities in the Tezos ecosystem who helped to develop the business, right? So uh, we gave a lot of grants, first of all, to academia. So we're working uh, very close with some of the leading universities, especially in Europe, INRIA is one of them. India and Spain, Cornell University in the US, etc. And we give them research grants to work on the protocol, which gives us good exposure right, in the academic okay. world. It's very important. The second is uh, we invested in, in people, right? At the end of the day, it's, it's, like, a, it's, it's like a company, right? So you, it's, it's all about people. So this was actually one of my main tasks in the beginning, just to get the right, to, to right CFO, the right general counsel, yeah. the right operations guys, and to help them to, to integrate into the project. And, um, you know, step by step, we started then to create um, entities and to fund independent thesis entities around the world, right? So um, if I look back at now the last 12 months, now we have Tezos organization in, 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 the, in, in Asia, right? In Singapore, Tezos Southeast Asia. We have a Tezos foundation in Korea, you know, one in Japan, one in Hong Kong. We have, we're starting uh, operations in Thailand. We have uh, created an office in New York City called TQ. Basically, they are part of, they are funded by the Tezos Foundation, but they are a separate entity. And their mission in the main uh, mainly is to help the business development, ecosystem development, mainly in the US market. They are very heavily involved in all which is related to communications and events around the Tezos ecosystem. So it's a, it's a support function, but an entrepreneurial-driven support function of the Tezos ecosystem, right? And the third part is technical services assistance. Mm -hmm. So we have a team there who you know, supports startups, supports institutions who are interested to work with Tezos and provide the technical backup and who coordinate the independent dev teams, especially in the US hemisphere, who want to build with the protocol. So there's, there's some of the, some of the you know, projects that we, that we have realized. How does it work for someone who wants to, they have an idea, they believe it's going to add tremendous value to Tezos and its infrastructure. What, how do they approach or what is it the process for them to get in with Tezos and suggest this is an opportunity for them? Yeah, no, that's an interesting one. I mean, I think there are two things here. 
we distinguish between grants and between investments, yeah. right? So what we are not doing is what some other protocols have been doing and are doing, especially during the, the bull market, right? Just pay to play, right? Yeah. So pay development teams just to build an, a, a D app just to pump the price. This is not what we want to do. So we say, if you have a good project and if you are an entrepreneurial-driven uh, project, right? Then first of all, you get your top VCs, you get some uh, qualified investors, you get some qualified angels on board to vet the project, to vet the business model. And in case you want to build on Tezos as a technology partner, we might co-invest, right? Mm. So that's the first approach. We are never leading the investment round because this is not what the Tezos mission is. We are there to support the proliferation okay. of the protocol. Instead, if you are um, a dev team who wants to contribute to some upgrades of the mainnet, for instance, right? So being part of this consensus mechanism, and there are a couple of them now around the world, then it's a different thing that it's more a grant, right? Yeah. Then you basically provide your grant proposal, grant request. Uh, it's all on, on, on our website, uh, www.tezos.com. Uh, the whole grant procedure is very well outlined. And then, you know, there is a, we have a, a very sophisticated and high-level expert technical, uh, so, uh, technical expertise team. So it's a consultative body to the Tezos Foundation Board. The founder is uh, Arthur Brightman is part of that, but a lot of people from the Tezos ecosystem who can be considered as, uh, as, as, as thought leaders in the tech space. And they evaluate these projects. And then it comes to a grant, another, you know, another group, committee, a grant committee, and then you know, a decision is being taken whether this is worth to be funded or not. So this is the normal standard ways to... Is there like a ticket size structure to it, the way it well, works? Yeah, I mean, for early stage uh, projects, you know, that come with a conceptual idea that have maybe some investors on board, the ticket size is classical early stage safe notes of 100K, maybe okay. 200. Uh, for grants, it's, it's a little bit less, right? So it depends completely on the projects. We already, we also did larger grants, for instance, in RIA, which is the kind of the MIT of France. They got a grant of, of several millions of dollars, right? Or euros in that case. Yeah, I mentioned. Uh, and then we have also projects where we might consider larger tickets. This is for more established players in the crypto space or established blockchain companies who are already funded, who have already millions of users. And there is, uh, I mean, it's everything under NDA yet, but there is a very interesting stuff in the pipeline which we're having. Great. And uh, which will come out what about before the Middle too East? long. Anything going on over here? As you, you, you spend a lot of time here. You well, I tried to, to, to convince Ahmed to become a paker. <laughs> <laughs> probably I, I come back to explain what a paker is. you were talking to me about it. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, we do have a, we do have a baker. You have a baking note. So baking note, just for, for, for context, that's the, <laughs> as I said before, proof of stake is the, is the underlying technology, which is uh, as opposed to proof of work in, in Ethereum and Bitcoin. Proof of stake consumes way less energy. You don't have to have any hardware or any uh, mining equipment. There is no puzzle to be solved. It doesn't consume as much as, as proof of work technologies. So basically what proof of stake means, you as a token holder are uh, due to the smart contract that is embedded in the token, you're part of the validation process, right? So in Tezos, uh, when you have 10,000 Tezis, you can become a delegator, a validator, sorry. You can basically create up your own node. If you don't have enough and you still want to be involved, you can delegate your tokens, which is a nice feature as well. So mm. you can delegate it to other experienced bakers or, or, or validators with a good track record. There's full transparency uh, yeah. on that on various block explorers. And you can delegate your coins and uh, make a ref share on the baking rewards. That's what I love about Tezos is that you still maintain ownership. Totally, you just yeah. give somebody the authority to basically earn you returns. Yeah. Exactly. Which exactly. is awesome. Also, yeah. for, for those of you who just heard this for the first time, we've 
made an episode about proof of stake and staking a couple of episodes ago, episode 36. So if you want to learn more about it, you could tune into that. So yeah, we're talking about the Middle East a bit more. I see Nick really wants to say something. Go on. No, no, I actually just want to ask, we've always pursued like an enterprise angle when I talk. So what are you doing with enterprises? So you mentioned industrial the, use cases as well. Yeah. Bit, yeah. Can, you, can you talk so, about that? Absolutely. Uh, so in, in Tezos, we have actually identified three verticals which we believe that the Tezos blockchain can add value in the relatively short to midterm, right? First one being digital assets. Yep. The second one being mobility. So everything around, uh, you know, with an IoT component. And the third one is, is gaming, not because I have a background in gaming, but <laughs> because gaming, if you remember, you know, back in the days, was always at the forefront of te technological yeah. evolution, right? Internet, mobile, VR, it was always games yeah. first, right? And we believe that also blockchain might pre present some interesting use cases for it, just, you know, to get comfortable with, with technology. What I mean by digital assets is particularly STOs, right? So the Tezos blockchain, due to its characteristics, uh, so we already tackled proof of stake, we already tackled the consensus, so the on-chain governance. But we also have a, a third element, which is a high security element called formal verification. This is the way how it's a mathematical proof uh, of transactions on the blockchain. So we don't need to have puzzles to be solved, as in a proof of work, for instance, but it's a mathematical process, it's a code basically, that verifies if certain actions um, or, or, or you know, decisions on the, on the tree, on the, on the blockchain are correct or not. And this technology is, wasn't invented by Tesla, obviously. It has been around for a while. It's mainly used off-chain now. It's mainly used in the aerospace industry, in the uh, nuclear um, energy space, in military space. So everywhere where a high level of security is required, right? For instance, Alstom is a French uh, supplier of, 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 of unmanned trains. The Paris Metro, some of these trains go. So they work with formal verification as an underlying technology. And Tezos is the first blockchain who used this technology embedding it into a protocol. Right? And that obviously provides a security layer that is way ahead of anything else which, is, which you can find on the market today. And therefore we believe it's very interesting for, for digital assets, for everything related to fintech where you need a lot of um, you know, a lot of security elements here. So why the STO space? We believe that it's, it's, I think, a low-hanging fruit to a certain extent. 2019, in my view, will be the transition uh, to an STO, more established STO market, which probably yeah. will kick off in 2020. You already see some countries, for instance, Switzerland, uh, Thailand, who are launching their laws, the legislation. Some yeah. have to pass them, but they enter into it only in 2020. And therefore, we thought this is probably something we should, uh, we should get involved in. So uh, when I'm talking about STOs, what do I mean? We are creating a Tezos token standard at the moment, which will okay. be ready by the end of the month which uh, the first time will be implemented in a project um, in Thailand. So the Thai uh, SEC, if you want, they um, will issue licenses for uh, security token exchanges. And one project which is built on Tezos, which is actually the first uh, real-world use case of Tezos, is, uh, is a project by a US investment group called Elevated Returns. Um, behind this group are the founders, owners of the Aspens and Regis. When you remember a couple of uh, months ago, there was a famous the famous tokenization of a hotel in Aspen, Colorado. Yeah. And the owners, they, it was built on Ethereum in the first place, but they migrated over to Tezos now for the large platform, awesome. for, probably for one of the reasons which I've mentioned before. And this will be a security token exchanges where one billion in, in, in real estate, mainly based in Asia, will be tokenized and made available 
to the uh, you know to the retail consumer, right? Yep. Based on Thai law. So the Thailand is one of the you know more advanced uh, jurisdictions in that respect. And we believe that the, the, the smart contracts uh, built on Tezos, settlement layers built on Tezos, I think this, this is a very interesting space. And this is not only concerns STOs for real estate. This can be STOs for SMEs, mm. for private equity funds, for venture capital funds. I mean, you had uh, our friend Luai on the podcast yeah. a couple of uh, months ago. So yeah. uh, his project, you know, um, Cambio goes a little bit into this direction. And there are many, many others who try to do something similar. So. I think this is something, uh, or digitalization of shares, right? So yeah. if you think about it, the price of an Amazon share is roughly $2,000. I mean, if you can tokenize that and make it available to some uh, retail customers who today don't have, simply don't have access to it in, in yeah. emerging markets, in frontier markets, this might be something very interesting. Obviously, that's not attractive to a US citizen or to a European. You can buy it through your broker, it's not a problem. But let's think about the emerging markets, a totally different uh, situation yeah. there. And I, I wanted to ask regarding the, you talked a bit about the, the future of sort of the, the short to midterm future, um, about sort of the applications you guys are trying to build. So what about in terms of the ecosystem as well? How do you see the Tezos ecosystem sort of differentiating itself from the EOS and the Ethereum and you know all the other sort of different blockchain platforms that are out there? Well, first of all, uh, Tezos is an, has its own a new programming language. So we are built on a language called OCaml. It's not an ERC20 token. It's not built on, on Solidity. Or, therefore, the developer community is obviously way smaller than Ethereum yet. But it's growing, right? So we do a lot of initiatives to, to educate developers around the world. I would say the ecosystem at the moment, if you compare it, is, is very techy. So I think um, the core development team of Tezos and the teams building around it are high quality, um, probably the best in class uh, as, much, as far as I can judge that I've seen in that space. All high level PhDs from leading universities working on the blockchain. We have a core development team in Paris of about 30 people. Some projects around the world you know, who contribute now to uh, you know, increasing and enhancing the, the, the core protocol. And I think this is, this is very much the core of the ecosystem, right? And then at the end of the day, during the fundraiser, we, uh, we had 30, a little bit more than 34,000 contributors. So we have 34,000 wallet holders in the first place. And they are, of course, all part of the ecosystem, right? And then starting from that, you have a lot of um, you know, enthusiasts in various parts who hold meetups and, and are part of the community. But what we are trying to do now with the strategic shift to the um, digital space, digital asset space, to automotive, to, uh, to enhance this ecosystem by in, in selected verticals with industrial or, or more commercial later stage partners. And then let's not forget, I mean, you've probably heard, have heard about that recently. Uh, Coinbase is the largest exchange worldwide, or one of the largest, at least the largest in the US. They have launched uh, institutional staking mechanisms built on Tezos. We were the first uh, protocol uh, that Coinbase used for that purpose. So basically what this is, is uh, institutions, you know, family offices, pension funds, whoever, who probably were a little bit hesitant getting involved into staking because just to, to, to open a phrase here, um, staking also brings you rewards, right? So the Tezos network has a natural inflation and dilutive inflation of 5.5% a year. And this is actually the baking reward. So the rewards for everybody providing his tokens. So it was for institutions so far not possible to participate in that unless you want to gamble with some, yeah. uh, with some wallet or these kind of things, right? So now with Coinbase, there's a professional custodianship. 
and we see a lot of action going on from that end. And uh, we see also other players, uh, you know, competitors of Coinbase now following up on that on that topic because it's very attractive for institutions that you can basically own your crypto, own your TESI tokens, and at the same time uh, earn some reward yeah, for validating the network. I, I did want to ask about that because I did have a discussion with the ADGM about this where you basically delegate your tokens to this baker or this person who will mine on your behalf, but this relationship is non-custodial, right? Um, and for them, this is like, this is new. It's a very different concept because you're not giving tokens, there's no custody involved. It's like, totally. it's like um, the equivalent of holding a deposit on a credit card at the hotel and the, the, the hotel would release the, the sort of the frozen funds after you check out or maybe mm -hmm. a week after you check out. How has regulation in the jurisdictions that you guys work in um, think about this? This particular Honestly, aspect? this has never been an issue, uh, at okay. least not in those places where we have been offering that so far. So, so they do count it as custodialship, but or they don't. <laughs> yeah, that's the question. So, the let's say the institutions you've worked with to mm -hmm. set this up or yeah. develop in the other markets. Are they licensed under a certain category to yes. hold clients' funds, although they're technically not holding clients' funds? What they're doing is they're providing returns on funds they're not physically holding. So I think if we distinguish between um, we have to distinguish between the institutional uh, custodianship, yeah. like the likes of Coinbase or others, this is absolutely licensed. I mean, yeah, this works. Yeah. This, is, this is very clear. In case of a private tesi holder, right, who yeah. wants to delegate his five tesis to a baker. There's nothing to do with custodianship. I mean, this is this is this is obviously doesn't fall under any uh, kind of custodianship or or, or uh, I don't know banking yeah. regulation whatsoever, right? That's just a delegation that you do. It's like you know giving your yeah. vote to to somebody who votes on your behalf. I think it just boils down to the the, the large volumes. These institutions don't want the responsibility of yeah. uh, having the keys. Exactly. And, uh, that's exactly why Coinbase came it. up with this offer, yeah. so, uh, which I mean, was very well received. So given that Coinbase and now Binance through the Trust Wallet have opened or have allowed people to delegate through the Trust Wallet, what, when is Tezos going to be on Coinbase and Binance? <laughs> well, uh, obviously I cannot tell a lot here. <laughs> I thought I'd try it, right? <laughs> I think you didn't expect to give an answer. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I did. I did. I was going to ask this question. Well, I know that you're, you're very smart. You're a very smart man. So because because Tesla has gone from forty cents since the since before the Coinbase announcements to now like a dollar something, dollar yeah. sixteen. I mean, which is good for Tezos holders. You know, the point is really the Tezos Foundation uh, is not involved in the listing process. So we have no mandate. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, we're not a security, right? We are a foundation, a non-profit foundation. If somebody wants to list us, they can do so. I mean, everything is open source, right? Yeah. Uh, there are lots of teams out there that can, uh, you know, provide Q&A or, or, or answer to the questions, right? So the foundation as such uh, doesn't get involved in yeah. that, obviously, you know. So let's talk about you. Yeah, yeah. I was As, uh, gonna, yeah. You've got a lot of experience. Um, you've, you've dived into companies from the very beginning. You've dived into stress situations like Tezos, and then you guys have managed to all turn it around as a board. What are you, guys, what are you up to yourself? Uh, you're mentioning your capital investment firm. So what are you doing and what do you look for? What is the priority for you? 
Well, what actually um, excites me in business is always, you know, to add value to fantastic, outstanding teams, right? So I'm, I'm more a team player, so I don't want to just work on my own and out of uh, on the beach and do my own trading or whatever. So I always enjoy, uh, you know, working with people who are way smarter than I am and helping them with the experience that I have, right? And that's exactly what happens, uh, for instance, with Tezos, right? That happened in Bubble Games, right? So I, I wasn't a game developer myself, right? I had a lot of business experience. I knew how to set up companies and how to structure them and eventually how to sell them. But uh, I mean, you always need somebody who, who provides the, the, the raw material, right? And, 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 and Tezos is pretty similar. So I mean, I just uh, try to contribute and when it comes to now developing the ecosystem, uh, making this an organization that has a sustainable business model, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the foundation is sitting on a lot of money, right? But we want this money to be used on the long term to proliferate the ecosystem and to, to just, you know, grow the ecosystem in a very sustainable way. Not just, you know, throw out of money in you know, the next two years and then see, you know, abandon everything and, uh, and the community will figure it out. No, I think the, the Thesis Foundation will always, at least for the foreseeable future, remain a part of the ecosystem and it will remain the part who obviously uh, you know, manages the funds or, or, or holds the, the funds, that's, that's by nature, but not as an end in itself. It's no, nobody's benefiting from that other than the community because the mandate is to reinvest in projects, right? And the longer the runway, the better the, the, the output. So my, my, my role is really to, to make that happen. It's about 50% of my time and the rest I'm, I'm looking for interesting investments, you know. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, the tech space is very dynamic and I see interesting conversions coming up between the classical tech VC space and the blockchain space. And obviously, I mean, being in both parts, that's, uh, that's going to be a very exciting future. I think you mentioned earlier, uh, outside of the, the podcast, 17 companies. Is it 17 you've invested in, into? In, no, in our portfolio, we have 21 companies. 21 companies. Yes, some of them are very well, obviously. Others are not so well. This is how a normal portfolio <laughs> looks like. But our returns are, are definitely way above average of, of, of industry VCs. How many are consumer and how many are enterprise related? I would say we are more B2C, definitely. Yeah, I would say probably blockchain is probably, you can argue, this is B2B, B2C, depends on which angle you take. Uh, but it's the, I would say it's a three-fourths is, uh, is B2C business. And how many are blockchain related and how many are not? Well, out of the 21 companies, we have about, if you call, count in a hedge fund, where it's a crypto hedge fund, where I'm also um, invested in, in the GP. If you count them in, it's six, five to six companies. Okay, 25%. Uh, yeah, okay, uh, uh, great. So I, I've been quite privileged to have worked with raising capital for some Series A mm -hmm. enterprise blockchain investments. Yeah. What do you look for when you invest as an investor? What are you looking for when it's blockchain related? Since we're on a blockchain podcast, we might as well yeah, take yeah, that yeah. slant. What was it that grabbed your attention for those five to six? And what was it you were looking for? Well, some of them invested in very early stage, obviously during the even pre-ICO hype, right? One of them, for instance, is a company based in Estonia called Change Bank. So it's a digital bank, right? They pivoted okay. now, fantastic team. I think they will come out with an interesting Revolut kind of project uh, built on the blockchain so pretty soon. But um, I mean, today, if I look at it, I'm, I always like to see companies that before raising an ICO or an ICO that already have some qualified investors on board, uh, solid equity around, solid tech, right? And that, you know, maybe consider a community, let's call it community raise, because at the end of the day, yeah. ICO is a community raise. You want to get involved with a lot of people who use this protocol somehow in some fashion, build that on top. So that's one of the things. And from the verticals, Honestly, I mean, I think fintech is, is a low-hanging fruit in, in digital assets and in, 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 in blockchain technology. I think we're going to see a lot of action here. 
if you just think about it, I mean, uh, shares, as we said before, tokenization of shares, you can do a lot of stuff from, uh, you know, the share register, payment of dividends, yeah. uh, can be put everything on a smart contract, right, in a very seamless way. So I think on that front, there, there will be interesting things coming up. Okay. But, um, you know, now I'm, 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 as far as the blockchain space is concerned, I'm very much focused on Tezos now, so I don't want to get involved in too many other things because yeah. the risk is also that you conflict with what you're doing. Because at the end of the day, Tezos itself is also investing in startups, right? So obviously I don't want to end up in a conflict of interest here. <laughs> and when it comes to actual sort of, when, when you're actually doing all this for Tezos and sort of splitting your time across the actual blockchain, the blockchain community and the real world community, how much time do you actually spend across between the both? Because there are ma many different protocols. I've just had enough of going to blockchain conferences and sort of spending time with traditional sort of industries. Have you already made that transition? Has it already been done? You know, what, where, where are you focusing your efforts um, hmm. on now? Or is it still trying to build the developer community for Tezos because it's a tech project and thus that's why the focus is. I think it's, it has to go in parallel, right? I mean, the, the protocol is, uh, is ever-evolving. It's a technology. I mean, we are in the very early stage, let's be frank about that. I mean, we are in the very early stage of probably, compared to the internet, we are in the, the 90s, mid-90s or something. So we are, if, 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 if at all, yes, I would say we are very early on. And so the protocol and the developer space has to evolve. That's, that's pretty clear. At the same time, obviously, you need use cases. And I see that a lot of people in the traditional economy, especially in, in, the, in the banking space, in the fintech space, they are disgusted uh, just because of these ICO things, that these scams that happen. I mean, there was uh, little regulation, low quality of regulators, uh, low quality of regulation, low quality of underlying assets. And that has disgusted a lot of people in the traditional world. And I think the job is now also to rebuild the trust and to show people that, you know, this was just the first hype, uh, you know, the, like the penny stocks back in the days, there were also a lot of scams going on. And, and now it's, it's, it's really about building solid stuff and, and, and just solving problems. That's at the end of the day what it is, right? So you need to make clear to the traditional industry, what is the problem that you're solving? How can you make your, your operations more efficient? How can you increase your reach? And I think all these philosophical and more libertarian uh, discussions that surround this space, right? This is nice. I mean, I also buy into that to a certain extent, but we shouldn't f lose the focus. At the end of the day, it's a business, right? It's not just a movement. Yeah. And, you know, I think the, the very interesting startups, they, we don't even know who this will be because they are companies who are now being built up. Yeah. I don't believe that we will see a lot of transitions from, from existing off-chain, maybe even off-net you know, net companies into the blockchain space. This will happen in some fashion, but that's more for the deal for the, for the private blockchain space. But I think we will see more startups that have the blockchain as an inherent part of the business model to create these network effects, to um, create a trustless environment, to solve privacy issues and all these kind of things. And, you know, and they, will, they will be the future, the, the future leaders in this industry. Yeah. If you look back you know, in, the, in the early 2000s, I mean, look at the S&P 500 and look today, right? So these were totally different companies. And I'm pretty sure that in 10 to 15 years, if you look at the leading companies in the, in the, in the stock markets, we will have a lot of blockchain-based business models, which yeah. today we don't even know the names of, yeah. you know. I think this will happen and this is pretty, pretty logical. Because at the end of the day, you also, apart from the technological evolution, you also have a generational societal shift going on, right? So if I speak to, to my friends who are in, in their below 30s, right, or even 20s, for them, crypto is, is normal, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's something completely conventional. If I speak yeah. to folks who are 
older than myself or to my parents, they don't get it, right? So I think regulators, as soon as regulators come out of the millennials yeah. uh, and, 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 you know, people who are growing up with this and who accept this as a normal standard way of, of interacting, I think this will then be an acceleration of the adaption and, and, and I'm pretty excited about this future. So I keep, I keep, you mentioned one thing and it revolves around business innovation and business model innovation, right? So there's a lot of industries out there that are still stuck in their old ways. They like to keep their monopoly. They like to keep their big chunky uh, value out of whatever they do. They, they don't have like, to. They don't like the idea of friction. That's what they should have all the so, them so to do. They love friction in the industry because it makes them look, feel like they know how to get it done and nobody yeah. else does. And one of them is media, actually, because I bumped into a really interesting project where uh, you've got the rights owners of content and they're used to selling billion-dollar contracts to make their money. Mm -hmm. Rather than making a billion dollars times one dollar, they drive like a billion dollars to one company and it's their job to figure out how to make money out of it. So that was, I was going to ask you a question about gaming. So you're, you're, you're excited about gaming for Tezos because of the, the ability to trade between people in those environments or because of the way that you can engage in the environment and instead of paying for the whole game up front and being $70, you can pay it for you can pay out basically seventy dollars over two years, but micro fractionally for things you do inside the environment. What, what is it? What is the angle that you guys get excited about? Well, I think gaming. Uh, if you look at it, if you look at normal game, mobile games, right? They have been tokens since ten years, right? So I mean, in-game currencies is something very familiar to every every everybody in mobile game space, right? And even in in, in, in desktop uh, games. So this is nothing. The concept of tokens is very well known to the industry, right? The only problem is, or the only, it's not a problem, it's a matter of fact, is that in the gaming industry, uh, every player tried to create a fence around his community and, and around his audience and avoid that they are, you know, running away. So there were all these startups and efforts to create clans, you know, and to, to, to tie the clans to your game, right, in order to increase monetization traction and, and and engagement, and I think with with the blockchain space and with a more open open source and open kind of a distributed kind of approach, you could actually share these collectibles amongst different you know publishers, games, and all that. I mean, there's a little, some resistance still from the industry I can see because obviously you're tapping into your competitors' field in a way. But if you think about the network effect that that can be created out of that, it's, that's that's very attractive. What I really like about digital worlds is that when you create something in the digital world. It cannot be copied if there's a protection around it, and therefore it is absolutely unique. Yeah. Whereas in the real world, you could buy a piece of art, but somebody could copy it <laughs> to a 99.9%, .9 and you would struggle to know if it was real or not, or the original. It takes a lot, but in the virtual world, I, and that's where I think a lot of this is going to go, people are going to buy into this virtual world and go, I have got that digital. Nobody can take this crypto kitty from me. Yeah. It is mine, and absolutely the most unique one of it. So it's I a, think we're probably uh, in the 80s point. of that. If we're, if we're in the 90, sort of 1995 about that, I think we're probably early 80s. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, you talk about the so kids of today, I mean, we're, we're, we're both youthful, you're, you're the youth, right? So you're probably going to want to own something virtual more than physical because you're going to yeah. travel so much, you don't care about that physical item sitting in your house doing nothing for you. Yeah. You'd rather take that virtual thing with you and show your friends in whatever environment you're living in. That's more exciting because yeah. you can share that and you can share it to your friend in China and in Dubai, etc. And talking about Dubai, if you had nothing to do, you walk out of this podcast, you've got nothing left to do, what would you do related to Tezos in the Middle East? 
give someone a hint about the opportunity that might lie yeah. in the region here. Well, you know, it's, it's, at the end of the day, Tezos is an open source protocol, right? And uh, I, what I see here in the Middle East is that, um, you know, institutions are very much looking into private blockchain solutions um, for whatever reasons. So what I'd like to probably, you know, educate people and tell them that open source can be something good. Then there are even uh, technologies where you can have an open source application without losing your privacy aspect, right? So, I mean, just as an example, in Tezos, we are now working on uh, upgrades on the protocol to, to create some, 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 some privacy functions. Uh, in addition, uh, there also, you can, you can, in theory, fork uh, a private solution of Tezos as well. But I think the, the idea is really to make clear to, to the public that uh, they shouldn't be afraid of, of open source protocols if they're governed in the correct way. Okay, great. So final question before we sign out. If you could recommend two people we could bring on to the podcast, who would they be? <laughs> So this is our like last question, you know, for, for every guest. <laughs> I hope I don't annoy anybody here. <laughs> Two people. Um, they have to be from the region or... or Whatever what pops into your mind. Yeah. Podcast, blockchain related, obviously, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I would probably, I would try to get Carlos Domingo from Securitize. Okay. Okay. A very interesting uh, fellow, building a great company. Uh, Has he been here before? He well, yeah, he's he's based in Dubai and in Miami, so I think he's going to be here. In a couple of yeah, weeks. he did. Yeah, he did. So I would recommend to speak to him. Another one, which is also really interesting, he was he's also some Dubai relation. His name is is actually the whole team, the founders of, of RSK. They were part of the Dubai Future Accelerator in 2016, I think, mm. and they uh, did a large ICO last year. A very interesting yeah. side chain on the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, super interesting technology. I'm not exactly aware where they're standing at this moment, but I know it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic team out of yeah. Buenos Aires. And you know, they know the region also pretty well. So yeah. maybe they you want to reach out cool to them. People. Yeah. Awesome. Great stuff. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And how can people get in touch with you? Well, I'm not super active on, on Instagram, Facebook, because I try to maintain what is called digital detox as much as possible. But professionally, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn and on Twitter under MR underscore Hubertus, Mr. Hubertus. Great stuff. Well, if you like this episode, please make sure to rate and review. Those reviews help the show a lot. And if you haven't subscribed to the episode, please make sure you go and hit that subscribe button. Once again, thanks so much, Hubertus, for coming on. Thank you, guys. Thank you.